calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 12. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com slash rogues. Special guest performers Mary Rogers for Chapter 17 and Danielle McCarvel for Chapter 18. For more information about Mary and Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website. Chapter 17 Sasha could hear the men's joints cracking and their sinews creaking, their groans of exertion as she led them through their routine of morning training. As she flexed and twisted, her voice sang out the cadence of the movements. Firefly straddles the wind. Two, three, four. The men contorted and flexed in unison, almost like a troop of dancers themselves. Some of the movements were quick. Some of them were painfully, thew-quiveringly, teeth-grittingly slow. But she always enjoyed the show. Whenever she led them through their stretching and balance drills, she was treated to an eyeful of rippling, sweat-sheened man-flesh. The willow bends. Two, three. Four. These men had the hardest, most muscular bodies she had ever seen. A bit of sweets for the eye made it easier for her to endure their eyes perpetually upon her. Although the boss had made it clear that the first man to touch her would lose that hand, she still recognized in these men the same universal lust that she saw every night in her dance at the Scarlet Sash. As such, it bored her. Not that she would ever take a complaint against one of the Black Furies to the boss. She was quite capable of dealing with any overzealous touch. She'd been doing it for much of five years, ever since... No. But unbidden, just like every other day, images of Verlan, with his unruly blonde shock, crooked, gap-toothed smile, and kind green eyes, shouldered into her thoughts, and she had to drive them away with the burn of stretching muscle and the taste of sweat on her lip. He'd been such a different soldier from the men who now surrounded her, the letter from his commanding officer was still nestled in her traveling bag, crinkled and ready to fall apart. Now, these men were not the loving kind. 
the men around her, following her movements and the sound of her voice on this open sward of grass along the empty roadside, were all virile, lusty men who frequented the establishment that served as her front in Norvan. They lacked any semblance of the tenderness that had made her give her heart to Verlan. That lust was even stronger with these men, as if the lust and the power that framed it came from the same source. The girls at the Scarlet Sash loved the Black Furies. They paid well, betted well, and only in rare instances misbehaved badly enough to force her or the boss to intervene. She knew each of them like a brother. They had run together, climbed together, swam together, sparred together since Rusk had brought her into the fold two years before. Despite Rusk's words that she was one of the boys, he seemed always loath to put her in harm's way. She appreciated the concern, but by a nonant's claws she could take care of herself. Half-moon setting, she called out. Two, three, four. The men around her did not care that every excruciating pose and movement she taught them tortured them with, had a name, even though they knew all the names. The willow bends, swan's demise, half-moon setting, firefly straddles the wind. But they did care that these movements kept their bodies supple and flexible. That was why Rusk had agreed to allow the first woman into the Black Furies. On the day that she had met him, he had demanded to know what she could offer him, and she gave him dance. He saw the wisdom in it, but he did not want her as a Black Fury only as a teacher to come up to the rook's nest. She had refused that offer. When she made the decision that she wanted to join this mysterious, infamous band of fighting men, she would brook no half-acceptance from Rusk. He accepted no such standards from his men, and damned if she would accept it from him. She was in, or she was out. He had laughed, and told her that she had balls bigger than most men. She was in. At first the men swore their protests like venom at the dance training— it was the nature of soldiers to gripe and complain, but Rusk had drowned their protests with oaths and blasphemies that could have peeled the whitewash from a castle wall. Within three months, after her leading the men in dance training every morning after their mountainside run, pained muscles and sprained joints had all but disappeared. Their balance and dexterity improved, and their bodies could do things they had never believed possible. The flexibility of dance had put temper in their steel-hard bodies. Except for one... He was just a raw recruit, and he mewled and complained like a little girl. Only a day out of the rook's nest, and already the fledgling known as Codsucker Maggot was faltering. He could not run a league without emptying his belly onto the ground. He could not perform half of her training drills without crying out that she was trying to break his back or twist off his head. Maggot had cunning and a stout frame like a block of wood, and little else. Lung Javin Wollstone had had the strength and the courage to take the sash from her. Rusk had devised other tests to measure his potential trainees, but no man had ever taken the sash from her before, never in the six months since they had started using the sash test. Only one man had gotten past Sarkis the doorman, and Sasha had promptly beaten him unconscious and left him in the alley. That candidate never bothered to return to the rook's nest. She might even have given the sash to Javin willingly, if he had only kept the secret about why he'd wanted it. The boss instilled secrecy in the Black Furies from the first day of training. They did nothing in the open. The Black Furies worked in the shadows, keeping their secrets and their mystique. Hands in the clouds! Two! Three! Four! She knew all of their names, but most of them were not their born names. Slammer, Corkleg, Buck, Fear Jack, 
Snake Eye, Stone, Blade. Some of them had unsavory pasts, men Rusk had known in prison. Brick, Severn, Shard, Horus, the twins Eden and Mardon. Some of them took on a new name to leave behind an old life. Docks, Mackett, Fish Breath, Singer. Even Carl McClan had left behind a noble birth for reasons he never discussed. Unfortunate that Javan had allowed a man like Maggot to overcome him. Ost had mentioned an ambush in the Black of Night that had allowed Maggot to gain the sash. Rusk had allowed it because part of the test was for thinking outside of the rules. Javan had played by an imagined or ingrained set of rules, and he'd lost. Did that not make him an honorable man? Of course! He was a fine, cultured nobleman, one of Cusca's elite sons, but that did not make him a suitable candidate to be a black fury. She looked over at Ost, who was overseeing Maggot's drills. Ost was pressing and bending the recruit into positions his body did not wish to go. Ost was only thirty years old, but his hair was already pure salted gray, a short, compact man with narrow shoulders and thick, hairy forearms. He looked down his nose over his spectacles at Maggot's pitiful attempts at the scorpion stings and shook his head. No, Ost roared. Godsucker, Maggot, do you want to be here? I, sir. Maggot's voice was choked by the unnatural position of his head straining back toward his spine. Sasha smiled inwardly. Ost was normally such a soft-spoken man. One would not expect such a bellow to come out of him. Do you want to be a stone-cold killer? Aye, sir. Do you want to eat gravel for breakfast and raw meat for dinner? Aye, sir. Do you want enough gold to bed twenty of the finest whores in Norgard? Aye, sir. Do you want the people in your home village to quiver at the sound of your name? Aye, sir. Do you want to be a black fury? Aye, sir. Ost leaned over and yelled down at Maggot. Then quit your whining! You sound like a six-year-old girl. Shut your mouth and do as she says, or you can pack up your sack and walk home. Does it hurt? Aye, sir. Ost leaned closer and lowered his voice, becoming quiet, seductive, reasonable. I'll wager before this week is out, you'll be begging to walk home. Let me tell you, Maggot, it's frightfully easy. The pain can stop right now. You can just stand up. Tell me to go suckle at the dark sister's breast and walk away. No more pain. No more scorpion stings. No more of me screaming in your face. Is that what you want, cudsucker maggot? No, sir. Are you absolutely certain? Aye, sir. Then do as I fucking say, you pus-sucking shit-eating maggot. Aye, sir. Sasha smiled despite herself and she sensed the silent amusement rippling through the other men. It seemed for a moment that Ost had magically gained a foot in height and four stone in weight. He positively sounded like the boss. Now that the dance drills had warmed their bodies, it was time for the real exertion, a grueling succession of push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups, hundreds of repetitions in all, using an innocuous but specifically placed bar on the back of their largest merchant wagon, the largest wagon, repainted on the morning they departed, was white and yellow, with a large gold-painted sun disk on each side as a good luck charm, painted as Gruss directed, so that he could find them easily when they reached Yarburg. 
As the wagons never left the rook's nest without new colors, no one else would ever recognize its true ownership. They were a simple merchant caravan, and Ost was to be addressed as one Fredman Whitehill. Their roadside camp was nestled against the screen of a copse of acacia and eucalyptus trees, beside the road from Norvan to the distant city of Yarburg, north up the coast from Norgard some hundred leagues. No one paid much attention to an itinerant merchant and his entourage. Merchant caravans were a common sight throughout Cusca, and armed guards a necessity against brigands. The canvas-covered wagons bearing their supplies and tools of war could have been filled with anything from salted bock meat and dried potatoes to fine cloth. Indeed, they carried several bolts of fine silk to keep up just such an appearance. Strangely enough, silk made excellent bandages, and the best quality silk with a thick, dense weave made passing fine protection against small blades and arrows. After their morning activities, they packed up their campsite, hitched up the box, saddled the collards, and were on their way. Sasha rode behind Fredman on the largest wagon, the perfect picture of a merchant's demure wife. As the wagons rolled out onto the road, Maggot trotted alongside, on foot. Ost's voice was quiet, but she detected the nonchalant amusement there. He is not allowed to ride until he has run a league. Then he can ride half a league before he must run another. She raised her eyebrows. Sometimes the ingenuity with which the Black Furies physically tortured their brethren surprised her still. What if he falls behind? Then he will catch up to us, or he will lose us. Or perhaps he'll just disappear, she said with a snort. You don't think he has the strength. I don't. He's weak and too cunning by a wagon load. He won't finish. Ost shrugged. We've run off better men than him. Aye, for certain. Maggot was already huffing. You say that with a bit too much certainty, Ost's stone-gray eyes bored into hers over the rims of his spectacles. She said nothing but pulled her gaze away and looked down the long winding road through woods and farmlands. Ost's voice was quiet and even, hardly louder than a murmur. Perhaps you think the wrong man passed the test. Of course not. Perhaps you admire the young man who was willing to go through the thousand hells of becoming one of us just to save his poor sister. I dare say you and I both know this mission is far larger than that, far more important than one little girl's life. You're avoiding my point. All that Javin Wallstone saw in us was a means to save her. She thumbed over her shoulder at Maggot, slogging along behind and starting to fall back. What about him? What does he see in us? He sees a group of men that he admires and wants to become. He himself doesn't believe that he will succeed, but there is a hungriness in him, a hole in his heart that we have both seen before. He may yet earn the mark. What do you know about him? Little, I'm afraid. Nor do I care. How many of us left something behind that we want forgotten? But how can we trust him? How can we trust one another, any of us? Because of those thousand hells that Javan Wallstone saw in his path. The boss is a genius that way. Only those who have passed through those same hells can be trusted. She nodded. He was indeed. She looked back again at Maggot. His ugliness, his shifty eyes, his bedraggled hair and dirty hands. His heart was dirty, too. She could see that much. But not Javan's heart. His had been haunted, but clean and unsullied, and focused on a single goal. To see his sister alive again. Would that little Bella were still alive, 
so that they all had something for which to hope. Chapter 18 Bella spat out the last of the vomit as she leaned in the darkness against the rough wooden wall of her prison. If only the floor would stop moving. Her bedraggled hair clung to her cheeks, and she rested her forehead against her arm on the side of the crate. Her latest spew added to the previous incident a few hours before. At least she had been able to aim for the same place. She slid feebly back to the far corner and curled up into a ball. She counted herself lucky that they had freed her hands and feet and left off the hood. She shuddered to imagine vomiting inside the hood. In the faint slivers of light leaking through the joints in the wood, she could see her wet, sloppy puddle in the far corner. The interior of the crate stank once again, and she had not seen the sun in perhaps three days, not since it had set on the way to the theater. Bella sighed and suppressed fresh tears, three days with only a few crusts of bread to eat and a bit of water. Three days of darkness. Three days listening to invisible boots and disembodied voices. Three days of thinking about her abductor's betrayal. Three days of half-waking nightmares of terror and humiliation, when she could not remember if she was awake or asleep, confined to darkness with her thoughts and fears. Three days of listening to the rush and rumble of the wind and sea, the occasional creak and clatter of oars, and imagining that her beloved home was falling farther and farther behind her with every moment. No one spoke to her. They simply opened the crate and threw in a few chunks of stale bread. They gave her only a sip of water now and then because they grew tired of letting her free to make water with the beasts. She thought about the young bocklings and their mother's pouch in the hold, all of them destined to be slaughtered eventually. Was that her destiny as well? Her thoughts spun in endless cycles of despair, hope, and fear. Somehow, she sensed that madness lay at the end of that road. She wished there was some way to reign in her mind, and all she could manage was to try to eavesdrop on the men around her. She had tried so hard to listen to the faint voices outside, but she could discern little. Heavy footfalls came closer. The metal latch clunked and slid, and one end of her box was thrown open. She blinked her eyes against the bright light. Legs waited for her at the end of the box. Out. She flinched at the harshness of the voice. It was so hard to remain strong in the face of such cruelty. But she must not allow the man once known as Rolf to cow her again to see her quivering hands or hear the fear in her voice. She crawled out of the box, careful not to touch the pool of vomit as she passed, and stood to her full height, even though lying curled up in the box for so long had stiffened her legs and back. Dizziness shot through her head, and painful jolts of sensation burst up and down her back and legs. "'Why do you disturb me?' she said. "'I did not call for you.' The man once called Rolf threw back his head into a mirthless laugh. He slapped her across the face. 
She reeled to the side with flashes of red and white in her eyes and the taste of blood in her mouth. She almost fell. The man said, You should learn to keep your mouth shut. Such a skill will serve you well where you're going. She stood up straight and bit back the quivering in her lip. Where am I going? He slapped her again, harder, and still she did not fall. She stood up, tears streaming down her face, but she would not weep. She would not cry. She would not give this beast the pleasure of knowing he had crushed her will. Never. Hot anger flared in her breast and tore into her heart. The sudden image of her discharging a pistol into this man's head flashed in her mind. And there it was. Hatred. This man had made her hate. She had never hated anyone before. Never once. But there it was. As strange and recognizable as the face of long-lost blood kin. His iron grip dug into her arm as he dragged her toward the steps to the upper deck. Come, little slut. He had taught her true hate, and that made her hate him more. Now along with it came a deep sadness. She had just lost something, something worth mourning, but she did not know what it was. The hate and the sadness were so overwhelming that she saw nothing else as she allowed herself to be dragged along like a doll. She hardly noticed the cool, moist air of the tossing sea as it wafted over her on the deck of the ship. She did not care that the light of the setting sun turned the ocean swells into undulating hills of froth and gold and aquamarine. She did not care that dozens of hard, dark eyes fell upon her and scrutinized her every movement as Rolf dragged her into the cabin under the quarterdeck. The door slammed shut behind her, casting her and the other two men into lamplit gloom. Light from Helion's sinking radiance splashed patches of golden orange upon the cabin walls through the small windows in the stern of the ship. Passably fine furniture appointed the cabin. A sturdy table had been shoved to the side to make room for the coarse woven mat unrolled in the center of the room. The mat fibers were colored and woven into red concentric circles, overlaid with the image of a blockish black temple. To the right of the temple was the shape of a serrated blade, just like the one that had killed Javan. To the left of the temple was a cluster of laurel branches surrounded by a halo of golden yellow. The man once known as Gustin spoke first. The captain was kind enough to lend us his cabin. There are certain things you must be taught before we arrive where we are going. The third man, whom she did not recognize, looked at her with a sneer of disdain. He was short and swarthy, with a thick black beard and eyes like chips of cold obsidian. Was he a farthy? All three of them were dressed in loose linen robes in earthen browns and pale yellow and ivory. The man once known as Guzdin spoke again. Kneel, down on the mat. She stiffened and spat. She knew what the mat was. I'll do no such thing. The man once called Rolf snarled and lunged toward her. 
His fist crashed into the side of her head, and this time she tumbled and fell onto the hard planks. Her vision swam, and her legs filled with water. She heard screaming close by as savage fingers twisted into her hair and dragged her prostrate form across the prayer mat, and after a moment she realized the screaming was coming from her. Yes, whore, squeal like a beast and kneel before righteous men. The mat was soft under her hands and knees and smelled of must and mildew as if it had been put away for a very long time. The third man stepped forward and said in a lilted, rounded, farthy accent, You have but to renounce your infidel faith and swear your soul to the holiest of holies, and all will be forgiven. You will be allowed to live and to flourish. The raw, feral hostility in his voice said that he neither expected nor wanted her to conform to his wishes. He sounded as if he would much rather simply slit her throat and throw her overboard than share his faith with one such as her. In that, the feeling was mutual. No, she cried. I shall never kneel before your prophets. Never. I am Bella Woolstone. The Moon Mother will protect. A strange wishing sound interrupted her, then a ferocious snapping, crackling. Then a dreadful moment later, a slashing, tearing, searing cacophony of agony across her back. She screamed and rolled onto her side, catching sight of the man once called Rolf, holding a black leather scourge with dozens of tails in his hand. Knots bulged at intervals along the tails. No, please, she cried, holding out her hands and legs to fend it away. The scourge rose and fell with the man's brutish snarl and struck her legs, wrapping around her leg and snapping like the fangs of a hundred vipers tearing into her tender flesh. Silence, infidel whore! Shut your mouth and never again let heathen blasphemies pass your lips. The scourge rose and slashed, rose and slashed, until it had reduced Bella to a bleeding, whimpering, sobbing pile curled in upon herself like a desiccated leaf. Her breath came in hot, racking gasps. Blood ran and dripped along her limbs in hot rivulets. The savage leather knots had ripped and torn her simple linen shift as if a ravening pit wolf had slashed it with its claws and teeth. How could a person become pain? She saw nothing, heard nothing, but the sizzling white-hot pain of the red slashes across her flesh. She was dying. The cruel fingers snatched a handful of her blood-slicked hair and pulled her ear close to his hot-breathing mouth. You'll kneel, whore. You'll become a proper woman, or you'll die. This is how disobedient women are properly chastised. But the master does far worse than this. Perhaps by morning prayers you'll see the true way to salvation. Bella Wolfstone heard no more. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? 
Robes of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.